Thanks, guys, for letting me come and talk. Thanks, Mark, for inviting me to do this. And you know, we had a cool program meeting yesterday, and Ray gave us a really neat devotional. And some of us have heard this before, but the statement that he made there was that if you're not excited, if you're not growing in your enthusiasm for what you're learning here at school, you probably shouldn't be here. And this idea that because God is so significant, like this is a pretty big deal, what we're studying, who we're studying. We're not studying a set of concepts. We're studying a person here. So the more I get to know God, I'm happy to say that I'm really regaining some of the fire that I hope is going to catch you guys on fire a little bit today. You know, I, I think that sometimes we take a lot of things for granted. Some stuff we think we understand and the stuff we think other people understand. And I've just been reminded in the last month here, how will they know unless someone tells them? And this is as much true for people who are believers in the church as for people who have never heard the gospel before. Just because I've understood something, because the Holy Spirit has revealed something to me, doesn't mean he's revealed it to the guy sitting next to me. And so I want to share something awesome with you today. And to start off, I just want to ask you guys to stand, because what I'm going to read here is the equivalent of a royal proclamation. So I want you to recognize that this is God making promises. And I, I want you to listen and just think about that this does actually apply to you. And I'll get to that. But I want to read from 2 Samuel 7, 1 to 17, the Davidic covenant. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go, and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Please be seated.
So we're going to start from the triggering feature of this passage, which is David wants to build a temple for God. It's important to understand how a temple functioned in the ancient times. We look at the temple now and we think of like an analog for a church building where we think that, oh yeah, it's a place where people go to worship. But it meant much more to the ancients. The way they understood gods to operate was that a god had a zone, a sort of country that he controlled. And so when you were in Egypt, the god was Ra, or when you were in Canaan, the god was Baal. And the idea was that there was this defined sort of boundary where a god says, this is my hood, and nobody's going to cross that line without stepping on my toes. And so the gods were fixed to their location, and the people understood that. And when people built a temple, it was because that temple was located in a place that seemed to be close to God. You can see evidence of this when Jacob falls asleep and has this vision of the stairway to heaven. And there's angels going up and down. And when he wakes up, he says, surely God is in this place. So Jacob understood that this was a significant spot and he called it the house of God, Bethel. So it's, it's still there. And had Jacob not already been on a quest from God, he would have built a temple right then and there. As it stood, he built an altar. But these sorts of locations were very important to the ancients. And so when they understood that this is a holy place, like a high place on a mountain, for instance, they would build temples there. And temples were microcosms. They were miniature realities. They had symbols that were built into them, like trees and rivers. And this was meant to represent the god's domain. And in that temple were images, carved images, and it was supposed to be a likeness of the god. And so they would carve these images out. They would, con they would conduct a purifying ceremony, and the presence of that god would come and dwell in that image. So the temple is not a place of worship per se. It is more a place of God's presence. The tabernacle, when you view it in those terms, is very unique because it is a temple, and it does embody God's presence. The tabernacle, when you view it in those terms, is very unique because it is a temple and it does embody God's presence. But it isn't static. It's in a tent. And God's, God calls David on this when he says, Hey, I want to build you a temple. And God says, I don't want a temple. I've been moving around in a tent because that's the way I meant it to be. God is attached to the people of Israel. He's not attached to some sort of defined geographic boundary. So God is uniquely in a relationship with the people of Israel. The thing here is that David understands God in the terms of his culture. He doesn't have a big enough vision of God. He says, I'm going to build a temple because God is in this place. What he doesn't realize is that God being in a movable tent reflects how God relates to his people. He doesn't understand how broad God's reach is. And this is something that becomes apparent later when God moves the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to release the people back from exile. That was unthinkable for the ancients, to have a god that moved and affected people over in some other god's domain. God does, or David doesn't see the extent of God's intended kingdom, but God makes a covenant with David. God has his plan. He says, I'm going to establish the kingdom forever. And he uses the language of father and son. In verse 14, he says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son. And so, to David, who's hearing this, this had political connotations. This was the kind of language that great kings made with little kings, who were their vassals. So the great king would write this document down that says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my son. And this was the language of a political relationship, where the great king endorses the little king and ensures his prosperity. 
God also tells David that he's going to build a house. And he means, in context, he means David's lineage, David's family, his bloodline. But I think the most important part of this covenant here is in verse 15. And this is really cool. I think this is really cool, all right? Because God says, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. Some translations render it differently by saying never, and I like this much more. It's like, my love is never going to leave this guy. And this is also really special. When you compare this to the other Old Testament covenants, you look at the covenant at Sinai, and there's a list of benefits to following God. If you follow me, I will bless you, and prosperity. But there's this huge list of curses attached to it, too. If you don't follow me, doom and gloom is going to follow you, so you better watch out. But the covenant God makes with David is different. It has a different tone because, yeah, God says, you know what? I will establish your house forever. If your descendant sins, he will receive punishment at the hands of men. But my love is never going to leave him like it did from Saul. Because you've seen this happen before, David. But my love is never going to leave your family. So to have this universal guarantee of the love and acceptance of God, it's unheard of to David. No God does this. It's always... What can I do for God so that God loves me? It's not about that. God has now said to David, I'm going to love your descendants always. Always. The covenant is unconditional. It's not God making a deal with David. It's God telling David, this is how it is. I have chosen your people. This is what it means that David is a man after God's own heart. Not because David is perfect. Not because David is a great musician, a great warrior, or a great king. But because God has chosen David. I will do this for you. So David, later on, this covenant stands forever. This covenant is fulfilled in Solomon at first. David dies. Solomon builds a temple, builds the house, the temple that David wanted. But Jesus fulfills this covenant even more. How much more in the eternality of it? Now the father-son language takes on a different dimension. This isn't a political arrangement anymore. When Jesus comes as a descendant of David, he comes as a, tr as, a, as a true son to God the Father. And what's more, because he is a son of David in the inheritance part of it, like he traces the lineage back to David, he now receives the promises of the Davidic covenant. So he is guaranteed an eternal kingdom. He is guaranteed an eternal house. He is guaranteed eternal love from God. Something I never understood before I came this year was, we learned it in last semester in Ray's class, when we took Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. And I'm going to read those out here. Because this is the point I'm getting at here. Everything else flows from this idea. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are an heir through Christ. We share the identity of Christ when we are adopted as the sons of God. And that means we receive the promises of the Davidic covenant. Doesn't this kind of amp you up? God said, my steadfast love will not depart from him, will never depart from him. Even if he sins, my steadfast love will never depart from you. Even if you do something wrong, even if you screw up, even if you've damaged your testimony beyond all reason, God will always love you. Always love you. 
That's so cool. That's so cool, guys. Doesn't that change? That changes how you think about yourself. Now we're part of God's family. We're part of that eternal house. This is what I'm getting at. David wanted to build a temple because he understood that God is with us. I want to create a physical embodiment of God's presence in Israel. I want to create a visual reminder of God's faithfulness to us. God has protected us. He's given us many things. I want to do something for God. And God says, you don't even understand what the temple means to me. The old temple, the one that David wanted to build, the one that Solomon built, the one that Herod rebuilt, it's been replaced. When Jesus died, Matthew 17.51 tells us that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. God's presence is now among his people. There is no division. The role that the priests fulfilled in bridging the gap between man and God, it's gone. Now God is with us because we are in Christ and Christ is in God. What's more, the temple that Herod built was demolished in AD 70. But it didn't matter because the temple was the people of God. The temple is the people of God. John 2, 19-22 Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And this is when he's just knocked over all the tables in the outer court. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus called himself the temple. And because we are united to Christ, we also are the temple. 2 Corinthians 6.16 For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. God's presence dwells in us. And so the role that the physical temple served as a reminder of God's presence and domain and rulership and influence is now present in everybody here. We don't have one temple here. We've got a hundred temples here. We've got a hundred reminders to the spirits, to the spirits of darkness. We've got a hundred reminders to the devil that God's presence is here and it's working and that the domain of God is not limited to the borders of Canaan. It is where you are. We understand that God is present in an all-encompassing way, but He is uniquely present in His people. You know, I talked about the idea of the image as being indwelt by God and representing His presence. There's a purification ceremony that had to take place, like the image would be formed, and then there would be a temple ritual that the priest would cleanse the image in certain ways. A good washing of the mouth is something that happened in particular. And then God, the God, would come and indwell that image. But we are God's image. We have been created in God's image. The same word. And now because of the cleansing work of the sacrifice of Jesus, God indwells us. How much better we are than some wooden stone or wooden or stone sculpture. God's spirit is with us. We embody Christ to each other and to the world. So what does this mean? And there's a lot of places I could go with what this means. And I'm hoping you guys will think about this afterwards. But mine isn't going to be as on the nose, as a, on the nose in application. I want to just ask some questions. Keeping in mind that you embody the presence of God, you embody the image of God. When people look at you, they need to see God. How do we need to see ourselves? 
You know, the devil wants to destroy your image, your self-image. He wants to destroy how you think about who you are. He wants you to look in the mirror in the morning and say, Ugh. Ugh. What? You are an embodiment of the holy God. How you've been made, how you speak, how you think, these are things that have been transformed and redeemed through the power of the blood of Christ. And now you are beautiful. Now you are holy. How do we need to look at each other? Because we recognize that just as God dwells in me, God also dwells in you. When I speak to you, do I speak like one who bears the presence of God? Who bears the image of God? Who bears the authority of God? How does our presence on this earth affect those who do not believe? Now we don't have to make a pilgrimage or go to the temple and offer our sacrifices and have somebody intercede for us. Now the temple comes to the people that need it. And so if there's somebody who's walking in darkness, they're not going to find God because they don't know where to go. And we see this in scripture all the time. People don't know where to go by themselves. So God condescends to come to where we are. We can't comprehend a divine being, so God sends Jesus in a form we can understand. And now he has remade the temple. He has remade the temple of God in his people. So that now the temple, the place of God's presence, we can, this can go to be in a darkened space and bring light into that space and intercede for the people in that space. When you start to understand that you're, just, you're not just a cell in a collective where if one guy dies, it's no big deal, we ought to talk about the language of the body by saying that, yes, we need to be united with the community, and we do. But that doesn't devalue who you are as an individual believer. You still embody God's presence. You are the image of God. So don't underestimate what you can do. Don't underestimate how valuable you are, how significant you are to this world. God has built his eternal house in you. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask that you recognize the truth about who and what you are because of who and what Christ is. You share in his inheritance. You share in those covenant promises. And you fulfill in ways that David's temple never could what it means to have the presence of God with his people. Let's pray. Holy God, great King, our Father, you who are so much greater than we can understand, your kingdom is so much bigger than David understood. Help us to understand, Father, and know that you have made us your presence, that your light shines through us, that your Holy Spirit indwells us and speaks through us. Thank you, Father, for inviting us to achieve your work. Help us to walk in your truth. Help us to walk in light. I pray these things in the name of Jesus.